Welcome to Optimal, the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Dickon Weatherby. And this podcast and my website all focus on one thing, and that's the quest for optimal health. Our goal is to help you to help your patients achieve optimal health so they can experience an optimal life. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google, and Spotify. And also make sure to go over to OptimalDX.com and check out our resources on the site. Now, without any further delay, is today's episode. Well, hello and welcome back to Optimal, the podcast. My name is Dr. Dickon Weatherby from Optimal DX and the host of Optimal. And I am joined as ever by Beth Allen DeLilio in Naples, Florida. How's things going, Beth? Hi, going well. Thank you. Cooling down a little bit. It's tolerable. Uh, yeah, Beth in <laughs> Naples, everything. Florida. It's uh, mid-October while we're recording this. And yeah, I'm kind of a little bit jealous. Still got some sunshine and I guess some oranges are coming on board. And presumably Naples, Florida, you get good oranges. You know, and there are too many people here, I think, to grow oranges anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I always think of Floridian oranges anyway. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, we are joined today by Lindsay Goddard. She's from Mosaic Diagnostics, previously known as Great Plains Laboratory. So another company that has made a change in their names, a little bit like how Great Smokies became Genova, and I guess uh, Great Plains became Mosaic. So welcome, Lindsay. I'm going to give a little brief intro to you, if that's okay, so our listeners know kind of who you are. She's a registered and licensed dietitian with a master's in nutrition, currently working on a graduate certificate in toxicology. And maybe by the time that this was written, you hadn't completed. I don't know. We'll ask you whether that has been completed or not. She's worked in a variety of healthcare fields, integrating both functional and conventional approaches. She has been with Great Plains, now Mosaic Diagnostics, for over four years and enjoys shedding light on the connections and interactions between the body, the environment, and nutrition. And we've asked Lindsay to come on board today to talk about the organic acid test, or OAT as it's known, and really start diving in a little bit into the nutritional implications. But first off, welcome, Lindsay, to Optimal. Good to have you on board with us. And maybe you could give a little bit of intro to kind of how you got your start, what intrigued you to become a registered licensed dietitian and talk a little bit maybe about your work in toxicology. Yeah, thanks, Dr. Weatherby. I'm back for having me. So I guess it all kind of started when I was in undergraduate school and I was doing research in ecology and really liked the physiology and I liked cellular biology. And then I was thinking of gearing towards ecology and my master's and I was just like not feeling it. So I was like, well, what do I really, really like? And nutrition was always something I had been interested in. So I went on to grad school and was going to do my research in nutrition. And then a a professor of mine was like, you should be a dietitian. It'll give you a lot more job opportunities. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, okay, I'll do that. So I was heavily focused in the research, but then I became the dietitian and did the internship. And then I really liked the clinical aspect because you could see the research and coming into application. So I did that for a little while and, um, and I started getting more into functional medicine And then I was starting to get burnout because I was not only working for doctor's offices and my private practice and the hospitals. (laughs) And so I was just kind of going a thousand miles an hour. And finally, I was just like, I can't do this anymore. I'm going to end up like one of my patients of sick and tired and all these problems with me. So I, I reached out to Great Plains and asked if I could be a part of their clinical team. And then Dr. Shaw said, yes. Wow. <laughs> so here I am. It's <laughs> yeah. a great road. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Road. It's been fun. And then, you know, as a dietitian, I really didn't have a lot of background in toxicology. I got some insights into the ecology realm that I was in. But then as I was getting into the company and really doing more work with like mycotoxins and heavy metals and toxicants, I was like, I need to get more training. So. Mm-hmm. I went back to USF and now I'm almost finished with the toxicology certificate. Wow, fantastic. Well, I know that um, Mosaic, formerly Great Plains, 
has a whole wide range of different testing that they do organic acid testing, mycotoxin profiles. They do glycophosphate testing, which I'm sure we, we could probably do a whole uh, <laughs> podcast just on glycophosphates mm -hmm. or glyphosphates. I'm very interested in the organic acid. And the reason is that I think of it kind of like the, the chem screen of the urine, right? So we at ODX, we're very focused on blood chemistry analysis. That's been my background and expertise to some extent. But the organic acid opens up a window into a, I would say not an exact replica, but a different window into different metabolic systems, biochemistry. So maybe we could just start right at the very beginning so that we're all on the same page and that our listeners can kind of know. If you could very quickly explain, you know, what are organic acids? What is the organic acids test? That would be super helpful to get everybody on board. So basically, organic acids are byproducts of cellular metabolism. And they're produced by all different organisms, right? Humans, bacteria, fungi. And when you start to see influences on the test, it's like these downstream byproducts of these metabolic pathways. And so you're getting some clues into how things are moving throughout the system, basically, and how things are being utilized. And from an organism standpoint, from like a bacteria and fungi, you can gain some clues into their metabolic function. And so it kind of serves in some different areas and it's giving you like a broad view of what's happening in the system. That's the way I look at it. We talked a little bit about too that this testing was originally used for infants to find out if they were missing certain enzymes and then they would produce mm -hmm. these acids and they would show up in their testing and then they would be diagnosed a lot of times right with inborn errors of metabolism. And it almost to me that validates it. What a valid beginning for a test like this and then expand it to the metabolic health, I guess you can say, of adults. I thought that was a great path too for the test itself. Absolutely. And I mean, still being used today, there's lots of labs that do it. So it's not this, you know, abstract thing in the medical industry. I mean, everybody's using it. It's just to like, what extent are they using it? And how deep can you go? Mm -hmm. So sometimes too, you can, even in adults, you can pick up if there are nutrient deficiencies, the body will produce this acid, say, instead of that acid. Like if you're baking a cake or baking something and you're missing an ingredient or you put the wrong ingredient, you end up with a different product. So would you say you could pick up nutrient deficiencies, inflammation, and again, of course, signs of toxicity and dysbiosis. Is that what it's mostly used for, would you say? Absolutely. Yep. Because, you know, there's a whole section of it if it's just the nutrients. But then you can actually kind of see where they're playing a role and the functionality of that metabolic pathway. And so it gives you like this broad picture. Okay, so, you know, I've got the mitochondria and the Krebs cycle. There is some dysfunction there. I know B12 plays a role there. I know B2 plays a role there. Let me go down into the nutritional section and look and see what's going on. So the test will tell you, oh, we think there's a B12 or a B2 deficiency. And then would it suggest other testing or do you think that's diagnostic enough insufficiency? So I usually follow up. I mean, it kind of depends on the marker. So for example, like methylmalonic acid, which is giving us clues into B12, to me, that's a pretty good marker. It's a pretty good indicator. A lot of providers use that as a diagnostic tool. But you could also broaden the picture and look at, you know, serum B12. You could look at homocysteine, right? Since that's such an influencer and in how homocysteine is moving over to methionine. And so then you can just kind of broaden the picture of like, okay, let's see where where is there a dysfunction? How is it moving? How is it being utilized? Mm -hmm. and, and these sometimes, they're not necessarily, people aren't born with this dysfunction. It can be corrected, right? With nutrition therapy. It's not like some, you know, infants are, that's it for life, inborn errors. But these things that you can reveal with the oat testing can be reversed, correct? With nutrients and other therapies. Oh, absolutely. Like, you know, it's not uncommon, right? For people to develop, let's say, low stomach acid, 
And so, or maybe their diet is insufficient in animal products and then they don't supplement. And then we pick up that they have some B12 insufficiencies from either one of those scenarios. So then you correct the root and then you correct the B12 support and then bam, they feel better. Yeah, it's amazing. How often do you think someone should repeat an oat test if they had, I suppose everybody has probably some problem that is revealed with this, but how often would you suggest that they repeat the test to see if therapies are working? Yeah. So I think it kind of depends on what the target is. Usually in like my practice, what I would do is if I was targeting something on the first page, which is the fungal and bacteria realm, um, I'm usually retesting every six weeks because I want to ensure that things are getting better. And I kind of gauge that too based on like symptoms. But for the rest of the test, if it was like I was just supporting mitochondria and I was supporting the nutrition, it would be nice if they could do a follow-up within like a six-month period just mm-hmm. to check in. But I feel like some people can't do that. So I just go based on symptoms for that. And then I don't have them rerun it unless their symptoms change or for the worse. Okay. And then at least in the annual CBC or, you know, chem profile, do you take a look at that too? Say to just as part of the follow-up? Yeah. You know, whenever I'm consulting with other providers, my usually they have a nice list of labs that they've already done. Mm-hmm. And CBC, CMP, stool tests is usually, usually part of that. And then we'll kind of go in and I'll be like, well, did you check? Did you, did you check this? Did you check mm-hmm. this? And then mm-hmm. you kind of <laughs> correspond it with, like, for example, if phosphoric acid is low, I was like, did you check vitamin D? What's going on there? Mm-hmm. Uh, because they have a correlation. It's kind of interesting. It's kind of an abstract thought that, like, as vitamin D receptors are being activated, they're producing phosphoric acid. So really? It, uh-huh. So if it's low on this test, there's the suspicion that, okay, well, maybe we want to look at vitamin D and check it. And so that, I mean, that's just like one example, but and then lactic acid, I usually am asking about what's going on with their iron and okay. oxygen. Okay. In oxidative stress markers too, and some detoxification markers too, you're picking up from the oat test. Oh, yes. Oxidative stress, I think, you know, because of the way the mitochondria function, are so susceptible to it. So if you look at Mm -hmm. markers 22 through 32, so 22 and 23 look at basically how the mitochondria are utilizing glucose. And then 30 through 32 is looking at how are the mitochondria using amino acids for energy? How are they generating that acetyl-CoA? And then 24 through 29 in the Krebs cycle section is how these micronutrients are generating that acetyl-CoA. How is that moving into the Krebs cycle? And oxidative stress, right, plays such a huge role on that function. And so when we're looking at this section, there's 10 markers, and I'll start to look at how many elevations are there out of the 10 and at which point are, is there that possible dysfunction? And then you can kind of gain some insights there too. And like what's going on with blood sugar dysregulations. And sometimes you can kind of pick that up too here. But the more elevations you're seeing in this mitochondria section, the more oxidative stress you assume is happening. Well, I was just kind of pull it back a little bit because mm-hmm. I feel like we're maybe diving into the weeds a little sooner than... <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> think, no, no, it's fine. I love it. But it's like, for those people that are, you know, maybe familiar with a chemistry screen, one of the nice things is that it has a natural breakdown of, of different biomarkers fall into different categories. So I was wondering, you know, we're talking about oxidative stress and amino acids and Krebs cycles and stuff. Could you give us like kind of a window into how the oat is broken down into its constituent classes, because I think it'll give people a real understanding of, you know, oh, oh, I can run this test to get a window into ketone and fatty acid oxidation or Mm -hmm. neurotransmitters. And it kind of gives people a sense of like the power of this particular test. And it's a great bang for your buck, right? So, And it's also easy to gather because it's a urine test. You know, there's no needles involved. You know, you just send out a kit and 
the patient is providing the sample for you as opposed to having to get their blood drawn. So the barrier to entry is really low. The metabolic markers that you get out of it. So I think for someone who's maybe never seen a test like this, they look at this and they go, geez, Louise, the, the names, I don't even understand what these names are. So maybe kind of helping us kind of break it down into its functional classes might be a helpful way to kind of at least know what the test is designed to test for, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Oh, you're so right. Thank you for doing that. Bringing me back. Sometimes I get <laughs> a little like, oh, you oh, you guys... you leave you in a room <laughs> and you start like talking about inborn metabolism and all that. Kind of <laughs> 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 so, the first stage of the ODE is basically metabolic byproducts of different organisms. And you get some clues here into how fungus is really acting particularly yeast and molds. And I think it's really important here to note that stool tests are kind of notorious for missing yeast. Mm -hmm. And they're not even looking at molds. And so I really love this part of the test to complement a stool test. Mm -hmm. because, because you're getting like it, you're picking up what the stool test is lacking and then on the O, you're getting a nice view, this part. And then when you look at a stool test, you're getting even more in depth of what's going on in the gut. So the section so, we'd look at there would be intestinal microbial overgrowth. So they would look at the right. category. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the intestinal microbial overgrowth section, and they break it down into yeast and fungal, which are the first nine. And then they break it down into bacteria. And there's some clues here of like just general dysbiosis. But what I really focus on is the Clostridia bacterial markers. And again, this will complement a stool test because stool testing is generally measuring the toxins produced by Clostridia, toxin A and toxin B, but they can't necessarily differentiate between pathogenic, beneficial, and commensal Clostridia. It's an anaerobic rest organism, so it's difficult. But here, we're actually measuring its metabolic byproducts. And so then you can kind of get some clues into other pathogenic clostridia. And these actual metabolites can influence things later on in the test. So you can kind of double check, if you will, which is really neat. And then as you move along, you're getting some clues into oxalate metabolites. The oxalates are really important, especially if you're dealing with people with pain or mineral dysregulations that are a little bit harder to pinpoint, and you're actually just measuring the oxalate crystals coming out in the urine. So what's mm. the, sorry, that's fascinating. So what's the connection with pain? So oxalates are, you know, these little crystals that come from different organisms and plants being a big one, mm -hmm. and these crystals can get into the tissue. And, and then they'll create pain. I guess like the best example is those calcium oxalate stones and the kidney. And so, you know, there's like this big craze of spinach smoothies. Well, <laughs> well yeah. it's great <laughs> in theory. Until you have kidney stones. Right. But if right. you take calcium, if you take calcium with the spinach, I tell me, you might as well, to bind it used to be the guidance. So it's the calcium with spinach. Mm -hmm. So you bound up that oxalate so it didn't get to the That's kidney. Right. Yeah. That's right. Right. And just comes out in the stool. And so it mm -hmm. doesn't have to go through the urinary path. And soy is another one. So if like you're um, working with like vegetarians and vegans and people who have a, a high plant-based diet, this is always on my radar. And then we um, move into mitochondrial markers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. or, yep. Yeah. Yep. And so you have the glycolytic, which is like the glucose metabolism. And then you have Krebs, which is just kind of giving you those clues into how the mitochondria is starting to generate the ATP. And then the amino acid metabolites. So how are they using amino acids for mm -hmm. energy? And then we go into the neurotransmitters. You're getting some dopamine breakdown products. You're getting a norepi and epinephrine breakdown products. And then serotonin breakdown product, the 5-HIAA. And then you get quinolinic and kynurinic. And this can be really helpful in evaluating not only some aspects of nutritional deficiencies, 
but also neuroinflammation. I have and, a question uh, too with that. Mm-hmm. A quick question is, can someone stay in the state of Rhode Island specifically who can't order their own tests, usually with lab tests, can they order this? Someone say with mood disorders and they just want, I could get them the whole test. Can, do you know if it's available in Rhode Island? Sorry to interrupt. Our test should be available in Rhode Island. I think it's New York is the only state that they can't order it. So someone that say wanted to just look at mood disorders, they could get this whole test. Every functional class is included in the OAT test? Yes. Yes. Thank you. In fact, we have some working relationships with psychiatrists, you know, and them teaching their students to use our testing because it's so important in the psychiatric world. We used to be a part of IMMH and they use our testing a lot, particularly with clostridia and then its impacts on the neurotransmitters. It's super interesting. One of the clostridia markers, well, actually the HPHPA and the 4-Cresol are kind of like the bigger ones and they can block the conversion of dopamine over to norepinephrine. And then that allows dopamine to elevate. And you see it very clearly on this test. It's very obvious that that's mm-hmm. what's happening. And then, so then they, they have those symptoms of high dopamine, right? Kind of go, 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 can't mm-hmm. settle down, wired, but tired. Mm-hmm. And then you reduce the clostridia and then they normalize. Oh, C. diff? So it could be C. diff or the other clostridia pathogens you're looking at? It could at. be the other clostridia pathogens. There's a lot of different pathogenic clostridia that produce those metabolites. I think everybody's going to go get this test right away. <laughs> yeah, heck yeah. Then, would you, at that point, would you recommend like a GI test or would you sort of treat presumptively at that point? No, because a lot of times the clostridia isn't showing up on the stool testing. Oh, interesting. Okay. And that's why I like it as such as a compliment because you might miss these things on a regular stool test. So we well, can use Because they're the, in the body and they're producing, you know, they're having influence of the organic acids that are getting released. You can see the evidence of them through the right. secretions of these acids and you're picking mm-hmm. those up. Wow. Mm-hmm. We're not waiting for them to get onto our stool, right? We're measuring right. how active they are. So, I mean, it's, it's one of the things that I think a lot of psychiatrists that are more integrative are using as like a screening tool too, just mm-hmm. to kind of rule out this being an issue because it's, I would say it's a simple fix. Yeah. Oh, so, so yeah, we, oh, we went off in that path. Right? <laughs> um, I thought the next functional class was pyrimidine. So it's testing for pyrimidine. Yeah. So this, these two markers kind of give you some clues into cellular turnover and uh, DNA and RNA synthesis. And one of the fun things about these two organic acids is it gives you some clues into folate levels. So folate is required for uracil to go to thymine. So if you see this disconnect here, you can start to think about what's going on with folate levels. And at that point, you know, you could run a homocysteine and kind of check there or serum levels of folate. Mm -hmm. How about SNPs? Would you look into the 5-methyl tetrahydrofolate SNPs? Oh, yeah, 100%. <laughs> yeah, that would be the other. And just getting like a good methylation panel in general. And what's interesting too here is a lot of times people that have this dysfunction, if it is genetic, respond more to folinic acid versus mm-hmm. methyl tetrahydrofolate. Really? How mm-hmm. would you determine that? How can you test to see what they need? You can retest this and they normalize when they get on folinic acid. Mm-hmm. So test kind of, okay. Mm-hmm. This would be another time where you maybe run a retest sooner to see how your intervention works. And then we um, went to ketones and fatty acid oxidation. Yeah, so 43 and 44 are ketones. And I really like this markers because you can kind of start to clue in into blood sugar dysregulations a little bit quicker. Then you may be able to like on a blood test, you know, when they're running like hemoglobin A1C, fasting blood glucose and fasting insulin. Sometimes these come back normal and it's because things haven't gotten bad yet. But this is a really sensitive way of looking at the ketones 
And so when these are elevated, I usually ask the person right off the bat, is this intentional? Are you trying to be in ketosis? Right, and if they exactly. tell me, you know, right, it's popular now. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then if it's like, no, I'm not, then I start asking questions of like, questions of like, what time are they eating? What's their macronutrients like? Do they feel hangry sooner than they'd like? Starting to kind of clue in and what's going on with their blood sugar. And then sometimes like a continuous glucose monitor is recommended to evaluate. And then 45 through 49, this is the other half of the fatty acid oxidation. And so what you're looking at here is basically how are the fatty acids moving into the mitochondria? And this is a really interesting section, especially if you're dealing with people who are restricting carbohydrates and relying on fatty acids for energy. Oftentimes what happens is, you know, people will take it upon themselves to do that, which is great, but they forget that that will start to increase their demand of carnitine. Carnitine, yeah. The car that brings the fatty acid. Mm-hmm. I love that, Beth. Yes, mm-hmm. exactly. <laughs> said, hey, so these start to back up and it starts to affect the fluidity of the cells, right? Because these fatty acids, I always think of them as sticky. And so as they're, you've got to shuttle them in, right? And then, so they need extra carnitine and then they also need extra riboflavin. And it puts a really high demand for riboflavin. And you can actually come down into nutritional markers is just the next section and just check on it and see how it's going. All um, these pieces put into putting all these pieces together, I think people are going to be very excited because we are putting <laughs> all these things that we look at into one test. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> oh no, yeah. It's great. It's there's the utility of this test is often pattern recognition and kind of being able to see like where the pieces of the puzzle fit. Right. Some people get kind of like hyper focused on understanding every marker, but it's, I look at it as it's like this big picture. And then there's these little details that we can get into and try to piece together things. And that's what we're doing at ODX. It's like, Mm -hmm. you know, you can do the same thing with the individual biomarkers and everyone gets very into the, like the individual biomarkers. But when we look Mm -hmm. at sort of pattern recognition and the interrelatedness between biomarkers and what it tells about human physiology and metabolism, then that gets very exciting because now you can open this window to, like you said, like a really good window into blood sugar regulation or liver health of the liver or kidney function and those sorts of things. But what I'm looking at here, which is really interesting, is like it's going even deeper into like the cellular metabolism, into the mitochondria, into the Krebs cycle, and which I don't think that the chemistry screen really does. So I'm seeing the need for both of these side by side almost. Yeah. Oh, great. Yeah, because like you're also getting some clues into how is it being utilized, right? And that kind of leads me into the nutritional markers. So in this section, some of it we're measuring end products, right? We're just going to measure how much B6 is coming out in your urine. But in, say, there's certain markers, the ones that have the asterisks, those are cellular intermediates to pathways that are influenced by that vitamin. So when you have an elevated methylmalonic acid, it's gluing you into there might be insufficiencies of B12. And so, you know, we kind of talked about that earlier on. And a lot of times, you know, to think about this in this test, I'll go back up to the mitochondria. How is that doing too? How is there's a methylation marker that we'll get to later on. How is that doing? Mm. And so you can kind of see how it's playing off of each other. B6 is kind of an interesting one because this one has so many different effects on this oat. So you can start to see this is low. B6 is low on this. But let's go up to starting with oxalates. Oxalate generation by our liver is influenced by B6. So if B6 is low, what's oxalates doing? B6 is also super influential in neurotransmitter generation. So let's go back up to that and see what's going on there. B6 is also influential in, you know, how is homocysteine going to cysteine instead of methionine? And how is it going to methionine? So 
you can kind of get some clues later on in the test that we'll hit about that as well. So let me ask if you, I'm sorry, but do you have like a standard range of how much B6 should be excreted? And when it's out of range, you suspect an insufficiency or an overdose? Do you have a range to go by? So the, because of the math of the test, you know, you have your mean and two standard deviations to the left or to the right of that. Because of that, usually B6 will even go to zero and it won't flag. But what I look for is three and above because that's what the literature supports. So three so, and above, so that's three millimoles mole of creatinine of B6 in the urine. And that would trigger you to think that there's a deficiency? If it's lower than that, oh, I might start thinking about that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And would creatinine itself throw off the test if someone had a problem with creatinine or kidney function? It depends on how advanced they are. Um, because the creatinine is basically there to account for dilution. And so use it just to kind of support being able to use urine and the metabolites in it. But the only time I usually tell people they shouldn't run an oat is if they're on dialysis Mm -hmm. or chronic kidney, probably stage four. And dehydration too might affect it? You know, you'll just see the creatinine go way high. (laughs) I actually had my husband do this one time and his creatinine was 600. And I was like, you really need to be drinking water because really you want it to be like 150 to 250. It's kind of like the ideal range. And that's why we ask for first morning urine, because we're trying to get it as concentrated as possible. But it doesn't really affect the test. You can still read it. They'll just account for that in, um, when they're getting the dilution factor. So the creatinine, they're measuring the creatinine in the urine, and they can use that result for that particular urine sample to adjust the metabolic markers for overhydration, dehydration, and that sort of thing. So it's sort of like a first thing that they probably would look at, and then they would adjust based upon what the creatinine level. Am I reading that right? You are, very much so. And it's also how we will reject samples if they're too dilute. I would say most of the time you come across that with children Mm -hmm. who are using this test and the infants, because it's so hard to catch the sample. And then when you do it, maybe too dilute. If it drops below 20, we reject the sample. Okay. Wow. I'd love to um, hear a little bit about detoxification also, because of course, with more toxins in our environment, in our food, in our water, in our air, you have more for detoxification. So what can you pick up from the oat test regarding detoxification? Once you go past the nutritional markers, you get into the indicators of detoxification and you get some clues into glutathione status. And you also get some clues into how homocysteine is shunting more to the cystothionine to cysteine pathway. So from a detoxification standpoint, we know that there's certain toxins and toxicants that can influence methylation. And it can also increase the demand for glutathione. So when we look at this methylation toxic exposure marker, we're looking at this homocysteine instead of going to methionine via methylation, it's going to cysteine at, to support the glutathione production. And that's the clue, okay, from the yes. end. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So when you see these two elevated, that's like a big red flag. And then I will also go back up to the mitochondria markers and if there's a lot of stress happening there, but particularly marker number 24, that's succinic acid. Succinate dehydrogenase, the enzyme that dries succinate, is very, very sensitive to toxicants and toxins in general. And so when they're present in higher amounts and it's, or maybe chronically, even in smaller amounts, you're going to start to see this influence and it backs up. And and then that's kind of your other big red flag, like, hey, there's some toxins here that we need to maybe look into deeper. It's not specific, but you can start to clue in about, you know, based on like clinical history. And sometimes there's other patterns within the oat that can guide you maybe to heavy metals, mold, or industrial chemicals. 
Some people don't know they're exposed. So you have to ask the right questions to find out. They don't realize how exposed they can be, I think. so. Mm -hmm. Oh, definitely. We've got, you know, the mold markers on the first page where we're measuring some metabolites from Aspergillus and Fusarium, which are found in indoor mold-contaminated buildings. So sometimes that can clue you in. I would say that's one of the bigger ones. And again, this is all part of the OAT test. You don't have to order the functional classes separately. This all shows up in one test. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yeah, it's a great test. And I usually tell providers, like, if you're going to start with one test, in urine, I would start here. And then it kind of clues you in to where to go next and more specifically what to order. Right. And then we have amino acid metabolism and mineral metabolism as well as part of this test. Mm -hmm. And so okay. this amino acid metabolite section, this is kind of where it all started. This is the basic of the organic acid test of like measuring for inborn errors of metabolism. But some of the things you can kind of pull out here are sometimes insufficiencies of B1, glutamine insufficiencies, or the reliance of utilizing more branch chain amino acids for energy. What would happen? Why would someone do that? Blood sugar dysregulations will, will be one inadequate protein intake will be another. Okay, great. And then sometimes you can get a clue into like how they're making neurotransmitters from mm. the amino acids, which is kind of neat. From this section, okay. Mm -hmm. So we're looking at sort of how the body is metabolizing and handling amino acids once you've ingested them. This isn't really looking at amino acid status, right? It's not looking at digestive capacity or whether or not you're consuming enough amino acids in your diet. It's more like once they're on board, now we can kind of see how they're being metabolized and if they're being metabolized correctly. Am I reading that right? So well put, Dr. Weatherby, because I feel like this section gets misinterpreted right. a lot. What I, when I first saw amino acid metabolism, I was like, hey, great, mm -hmm. this is going to be a window into whether or not someone's able to you know, adequately digest and break apart proteins. And But uh, now I'm hearing you talking, it's like, oh, that's not the case. <laughs> so like, it's a lot further down the pathway. So it's a little bit harder to say like digestion and absorption, but it certainly can clue you in. So if I saw these all very low, and then I'm like, eh, okay, but I'm going to go back up to the neurotransmitters, also all very low. And then I'm going to go and I'm going to look at what's going on with the nutritional markers. And is there any insufficiencies there that could be related to also insufficient amino acid intake? And then that all together can kind of clue me into like, hmm, maybe I need to run a stool test to evaluate what's going on with the digestion of amino acids, or maybe I just give digestive enzyme and increase their intake. And use of branched-chain amino acids you mentioned. So if you have glucose just metabolism dysfunction, you'd have an increase in branched-chain amino acids? Sometimes we'll see that mm -hmm, okay. because you're getting some clues into how the skeletal muscle is starting to break down the branched-chain amino acids for utilization. Because they have to, right? Because they're not getting right. the glucose they need. Okay. Right. They don't want to do that. It would not behoove them to, but they will if they have to, they right? Because they're necessary. Backup yeah. plan. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I always tell people, I'm like, we got to give the body some credit. It's very smart. And it knows what it needs. If we give it the right tools and the right nutrients, it can do a lot. We just kind of have to figure out where it needs the most support. That's all. Well, we talked about like, I don't know if you want to go into this now, Dr. Weatherby, but like, what are your two favorite things that you might chat about in the elevator? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, from a nutrition standpoint, I would probably have that discussion of balance mm -hmm. and like not leaning one way or the other too much, but just really having like a balanced diet, which it seems so trite and so simple, but I just see it being so important. And then it's not necessarily nutrition, but it kind of is. And it's this being gentle with ourselves and not 
having such a stressful go, go, go all the time mentality. Because I feel like you can do all the right things from a physical standpoint and a nutrition standpoint, but with your emotional well-being and your stress to the max all the time, it's not going to make that much of a difference. I, I mean, it can. It can. Mm-hmm. A thousand yeah. percent. Yeah, I think I, if people have been through a lot of stress, they're going to agree with you a thousand percent. And I call it, you know, we know the fight or flight, but I think it's a fight, flight or fright syndrome because you can be so paralyzed by stress or frightened or the deer in the mm-hmm. headlights look mm-hmm. that you, mm-hmm. you can't function. Like you said, you're eating right, you're exercising, you're doing all these things, but there isn't balance in the body, not just in the diet, mm-hmm. but in, in the body and stress management can, can help bring that. Otherwise we'll be paralyzed with fear and dysfunction. Yeah. And people yeah. start to wonder when they hit 40, why their body starts to break down, mm-hmm. you know, and it's mm-hmm. like, well, I'm just, I'm eating right. But it's like, it's the level of stress that you've been under for the last 15 years or however many years it is. You just can't self-regulate anymore. And I would yeah. imagine that a test like this can kind of give you an early window into how is, how is the body's metabolism and physiology responding to the lifestyle that you're living, the food that you're eating, the stress that you're under. And like you said, give you windows into where areas that we can make adjustments, be it nutritional, be it lifestyle, all that kind of stuff. So fascinating to hear you talking about that. And I love how you kind of almost walk through your thinking process around if you see these oat markers lower in the test, like, you know, 55, 56, or whatever. And now you're starting to go back up again and look at the interrelatedness between the other biomarkers, because that's how I look at a chemistry screen. One of the questions I wanted to ask you was, a note comes back, what's the first thing that you look at? And the reason I ask that is that people always ask me that, you know, when you get a chemistry screen with 100 biomarkers on it, where do you look first? And I always look at serum proteins, because mm-hmm. I'm interested in as a naturopathic physician, we were drilled in as like, oh, you know, you've got to look at how is the body digesting and breaking down and absorbing nutrients. When I look at proteins, I'm looking at it through the window of, are you obviously intaking adequate levels of protein, but how is the body handling it once it's in your stomach? And then I look at like BUN and phosphorus, and then I look at MCV and calcium and iron. It's like all of these things slowly start to build up this picture of whether or not someone has insufficient digestive capacity. So I'm curious where you go to when an oat comes back, you know, what is the first pattern that you look at to kind of verify or make sure that things are moving in the right direction or not? Mm -hmm. I usually look at the mitochondria first. So I'll look at, well, because you can start to build a case of why do I think this person is on a lot of mitochondrial stress and it tends to be what is causing a lot of their symptoms, or at least contributing to a lot outside of the GI tract <laughs> and the first page. I mean, the first page is kind of, you know, the the yeast and the molds and the clostridium. Sure, like that's definitely something that we want to target. But when I'm looking at the person, I look at the mitochondria and I see how functional this is happening? What is there a lot of backups? Is it kind of moving all the way? And a lot of times when I see a lot of backups, I'll go to the ketone and fatty acid section, like, well, how are they using this aspect too? Mm-hmm. And I'll go to the nutritional markers. Is there an influence here? Is there nutrient insufficiency? I'll go to the glutathione marker and the methylation. Like, could there be some sort of toxic exposure that's happening that could be further compounding this? And this is why they're so tired and they have brain fog. And then after that, I'll usually go up to the first page and say like, okay, so tell me the story. What's going on with this patient? Mm -hmm. And what are the symptoms? And how can we help them feel better? while we figure out the rest. Because usually, you know, if they're having a lot of dysbiosis that we've picked up on the first page, that can be an influence on the rest of the test too. But why is that dysbiosis happening? Do they have glyphosate? Do they have a lot of stress? Do they have mold in their environment? 
you know, a lot of antibiotic use, like what is causing this? And we'll fix that. But then also we want to fix the rest of the tests so they feel better as well throughout the system. And do you do that? Like if someone had this test, can they get a consultation with you to review it? Or is it always a practitioner that's involved with the patient or the client? So it's usually a practitioner. We used to do patients, but we no longer do that. You'd be pretty busy, I think. Yeah. <laughs> you know, though, I miss it. I loved working yeah. with the patients. You learn, you know, so much from your patients. And I always felt like I would get off the phone and be like, well, you know, that was a symbiotic call because I mm -hmm. learned a lot too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but no, it's more practitioners who need support and kind of learning the test. So when providers are trying to start to utilize this testing, usually what I recommend they do is like go to our website and listen to some of the webinars that are free that, mm -hmm. you know, kind of give like an OAT 101 and then get used to the language because it takes a little bit of time to go back into that biokin mindset. You know, you were so used to looking at big picture and now you kind of have to hone in and to the details. And so do that and then run some tests, either on you, your family, your patients and call us. And then we'll help you walk through it and start to recognize patterns. And you'll start to kind of be able to apply the knowledge to your patient based on the symptom. And Excellent. then after that, they can go to like one of the big, you know, seminars that we hold and they can really dive in dive deep. Dive in deep, yeah. Mm -hmm. So the website service. is mosaicdx.com. And Lindsay, thank you so much for kind of walking through the process because I think for a lot of people, everything that we've been touching in on is so fascinating and it's like revelatory in terms of what it can give you as a practitioner and a window into your patient's physiology, but metabolism, biochemistry, et cetera. But the learning curve is pretty steep, I would say. And so follow Lindsay's advice. There. I think that's a great opportunity to test yourself first, test a family member and get your feet wet and start looking at your patients through this particular lens and this particular window. Um, yeah. Beth, is there anything else that you want to ask as we wrap this up? Me? No, I, I'm just, I'm so thrilled, Lindsay, because you did such a good job, the overviews and then the clinical applications. Yeah, and I, I'm going to go and get this test myself <laughs> probably today. And I'll be calling you because I, just, uh, I yes. haven't been years ago. And for me, you know, dysbiosis always shows up, but all these other, it wasn't as advanced of a test. So yeah, I'm definitely going to go ahead and I'm going to get myself a test. Now, it's only practitioners, though. Patients themselves can't order the test, correct? So me as a practitioner could order my own test, though. Oh, yes. Yeah, you absolutely can. And, you know, there's a will, there's a way. And I usually tell patients, like, if they really want this test, they can go onto, like, those third-party sites. And you can get consultations through there as well. Not through us, but, like, I think it's my med lab has some um, any lab tests the lab test plus i think has one they can have access to order their own testing and get consultations if they want through that i think they have to pay for it though mosaic offers uh free consults to providers the providers now i presume that our listeners are practitioners but i could imagine that this podcast is syndicated everywhere so if you are a patient or someone that would love to get hold of this test you know, one of the things to think about is actually talk to your practitioner about it. Mm. Because the more practitioners we educate, the more likely it is that this type of testing becomes the norm in clinical assessments. And rather than being sort of on the fringe of functional medicine, it just becomes adopted as a standard of care, because we need yeah. this testing. Because I think one of the things that you pointed out earlier, which may have slipped under the radar a little bit, is like when you talked about, oh, you know, you, your blood sugar, your blood sugar regulation is normal, and you don't have diabetes yet. And there's something that Beth and I talk about all the time is this concept of like, you don't have something yet. So we'll wait until you do because we know how to treat it when it's there. Well, what we're looking at really here is sort of early warning signs, early radar, and we talk at the chemistry screen in that perspective. And I think you can talk about the ode as well. 
It's like, how do we assess people before they become diseased so that we can actually intervene in ways that are less invasive, less dangerous, less causing of side effects? So turn the, more... the car away for the cliff. Instead of going over the cliff, we want to turn the car before they will. Yes, thank you. What a great analogy. Yes. Yeah. Like, <laughs> hey, I'm going over the cliff, but there's a trampoline Wait, under there that may be able to help me. Or, you know, it's like, yeah. I don't want a car wreck. <laughs> yes. I know it's true. I can't tell you like how many times they see a terrible looking out and the patient's like, oh, I feel fine. Yeah. And no, my yeah. first question is like, well, what's fine? <laughs> yes. What does that mean? But also, you might have just prevented yourself from really going somewhere bad. And we picked it up, you know, and I think, I think that's part of like preventative medicine that is just so important. Mm -hmm. um, it gets lost in uh, some of the society. But I did want to just say, Dr. Weatherby, with you were saying, patients bring this to your physicians. That's really how the oat got on the map with the autism community, especially. Yeah. They were bringing yeah. these to their doctors and saying, I need you to order this test for my son or my daughter. And as they were doing it and they were seeing such benefit coming from it and these children doing so much better, they started believing in the test and then it just took off. Yeah. Thank goodness. But when you look at the sort of categorization that you just went through, I mean, just the areas of metabolism that it touches in on is quite broad. So yeah. it's not just looking at, you know, markers for autism. It's like, yeah, that's obviously very important. But it's like, there's a whole load of other stuff that's coming on here that's so important. So wow. let's get the word out. Let's these tests in the hands of practitioners who can then get educated, go to mosaicdx.com, learn about, like Lindsay was saying, go to the webinars, go to some of their uh, deep dive training programs and stuff, educate yourself on this. Um, hopefully we've done a little bit to kind of spread the word. I really appreciate, you know, you coming on today and sharing your, your knowledge and expertise and keeping it as simple as possible so that people can really understand what this test is really doing. So I really appreciate you doing that. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, both of you for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here. I'm grateful that we can kind of get this word out of the organic acid test. Well, Beth, Yay. Uh, Yay. wraps up another <laughs> optimal. So if you're interested in, again, just to sound like a broken record, mosaicdx.com and order the oat from there. And then also, if you're interested in blood chemistry analysis, that's our areas of expertise, come over to optimaldx.com. We've got tons of resources, downloadable guides and handouts, and we do a training program on blood chemistry. And of course, we've got our analytic software as well. So Come on over to Optimal DX. We'd love to have you. Um, so thanks so much, Lindsay. Appreciate it. Enjoy the rest of your day, Beth. Enjoy the Thank rest you. of your day as well. And Thank my you. name's Dr. Dickon Weatherby, founder and CEO of Optimal DX. Come check us out. And until then, stay optimal. And we'll see you in another episode of Optimal, the podcast. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye.